Well, good morning again. It is good to see all of you, and we're glad that you have come this morning to join us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Last Sunday, if you were with us, you'll know that we um, looked at the first part of this chapter, and we looked at and examined all the things that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon those uh, 120 believers that had gathered together there in the city of Jerusalem. And as he did, he displayed many wonders and signs. In fact, as we noted last week, his arrival was accompanied by many extraordinary events. Um, The sound of rushing mighty wind. We also noticed that there was the sight of flaming tongues of fire that rested upon each of those that were there and had gathered together. And then there was also the speech of those same persons as they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began testifying to Jesus. They began testifying to all of the works that he had done and all the things that he had taught. And they did that in the native languages of all of those folks that had gathered there in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost who had come from all across Europe and the Middle East and even Northern Africa. They had all assembled there in Jerusalem. And and these people went out and began to testify of Jesus in these native languages. And such a spectacle was awesome. It certainly was. It, It garnered a lot of attention. But it was also confusing to many people. So we also noted last week how Peter stood up and how he began to, to, to preach a sermon to all of those who had gathered there in the temple. In fact, he preached an expositional uh, explanation of all that had occurred. He, he, he re- record, uh, referred to some Old Testament texts from the prophet Joel, as well as from David, who wrote some psalms. And in the process of referring to those things, uh, he, he talked about how they had really prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years earlier to the exact detail of things that would occur and did occur there in Jerusalem on that day. And then Peter went on to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, whom the Jews had rejected and whom they had crucified on Calvary's cross. And then he called upon them who, to whom he preached that day to repent and to place their faith and identify themselves with Jesus through baptism. And, and so as a result, the, the Holy Spirit as we read, used Peter's sermon that he preached that day to bring conviction upon those who gathered there that day and an evangelistic explosion occurred because the Bible tells us that over 3,000 souls were saved that day and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ grew exponentially overnight. So that's really what we looked at last week and so it left some questions in my mind. I don't know if it did yours. As we study that, the questions that began to roll through my mind, so, so what would happen next? What's going to occur next? I mean, fantastic sights and wonders had occurred. So are those kind of things going to continue? Has that become what's normative for the church? How would those 3,120 souls begin to relate to one another? Because there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of folks that have come together suddenly overnight. How are they going to interact with one another? What, what would their priorities be now that they came together? How, how would their lives be changed radically and permanently as a result of the Holy Spirit having come upon them as we read about in the first part of this chapter? Well, the good news is, is that Luke addresses 
that and begins to talk about it here at the end of this chapter. And, and much of the rest of what we'll continue to study in the book of Acts will continue to answer a lot of those questions. But I want us to focus our attention on the final few verses of this chapter today. And so begin reading with me there as we pick up in verse 42. After those 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, we, we read that Luke says this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again this morning. Father, we do thank you for this day. And we do thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to gather together in front of our open books and of the Bible and together side by side with our fellow believers as we study your word. Now, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, tune us in to that which you would have us to understand today by your direction of your Holy Spirit. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, one morning this past week, as I was getting ready to take... Uh, my, my two younger daughters to school while I was listening because Caroline was reading a devotional book with Charlie as he was also getting ready and, and they were there at the breakfast table together and, and the introduction to the devotion that she was reading to Charlie got my attention and so I wanted to share it with you because the introduction went like this and I'm going to see how many of you know some of these, uh, these answers. Uh, it, it started this way, that a group of lions assembled together are called a pride. Y'all are good. I didn't even know that one. Um, a bunch of frogs that are assembled together are called an army. Gotcha. A cluster of elephants is called a parade. When giraffes gather together, it's called a tower. Ah, I told you it was harder than I thought, too. This is my favorite one. When gorillas come together, they form a band. <laughs> but when a group of Christians come together and form something, it is called a church. That's right. That's right. And this is what, that's exactly what Luke describes for us as having occurred here in Acts chapter 2, it's the formation of the church. The Holy Spirit had come upon and assembled 3,120 believers there in Jerusalem, and a church was formed. And in the final verses of this chapter, Luke provides us with information that kind of answers a lot of those questions that we began ask, asking ourselves earlier. These believers had been saved, and they had been filled with the Spirit, and now they came together to form this church. And Luke Luke describes what life in that spirit-filled church looked like, and in doing so, he provides us with a description of its characteristics, and they are features that should mark each of our lives as well, and also us as a collective body of believers here in this day and time. 
Notice with me that Luke uses a word there in verse 42. I want to highlight this for you as we begin today. It's a word that's translated in the New King James as continued steadfastly. It's a word in Greek that's it takes two English words for us to get our hands around of it in the New King James. But, but in the ESV and the NIV, they translate the word as being devoted to something. And I really like that translation even better because I think it gets to the heart of the meaning of the word because it implies that there were things that to which these believers committed themselves. There were things in which they continued in, things in which they persevered in because the Holy Spirit had led them to these things and they became incredibly important to the body of Christ. And it's these things to which this church became devoted and I want us to examine those things together as a church body together today. And the first one is this, a spirit-filled church will be marked by a devotion to the word, a devotion to the word. That's the first point there on your outline this morning. The first part of verse 42 tells us that all of those who had been added to the body of believers there in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in or they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Now, I believe that it is instructive that this is the first characteristic that Luke mentions. I, 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 in fact, Tony Marita has pointed out that, that, that perhaps this characteristic finds itself positioned at the very beginning, at the front, because in a spirit-filled church, the Word of God informs everything else. You have to begin there. One of my favorite theologians and writers is John R.W. Stott. I've quoted him many times. He observes that immediately following the large addition of all of these new believers to the church, this 3,000 new souls, he says the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem, and there were 3,000 pupils in kindergarten. This is how it started. And I think it's worth considering that based upon the extraordinary events that had occurred on the day of Pentecost, all of those, those sounds and sights and those miracles of speech that had occurred there, we might imagine that these new believers, these, these, these new kids on the block that had just come into the faith, that they would be really entranced by wanting to get involved in those kind of things. That for them, the, what would have been exciting for them and what would, they would have been pursuing was, was something along those same lines, perhaps some, some sort of mystical experience or some sort of emotional high. But, but rather, what appealed to them and what they committed themselves to, what they were devoted to, what they persevered in was, well the mundane study of these dusty and ancient Old Testament texts that revealed Jesus all the way back from the very beginning. You see, rather than yawning at the study of God's Word, rather than, rather than just becoming a little bit sleepy-eyed at understanding and applying Scripture to try to understand it, these new believers instead became hungry for it. They wanted more of the learning. They wanted to understand more of God's Word. And so by way of application, I think we can say that just as this early church was devoted to the Word, so must we as a church be devoted to the Word today. Listen, a healthy church will be comprised of believers who are passionate about learning and knowing their Bible. 
To quote Marita once more, he says this, healthy congregations consume a healthy diet of sound doctrine. They feast on the Word of God, which tells the message of the Savior. James Boyce, he concurs and he puts it this way. He says, a spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church. Now, notice from a practical standpoint, Luke tells us that such devotion to the Word occurred in two ways. Notice what we read in verse 46. He says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. We'll look at the further significance of that verse in just a moment. But for now, notice with me that the priority of studying the word took place in a corporate setting, such as we are here in this morning, where we're all together under the the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. But then that's how it happened there. But it also took place in less formal settings, smaller groups that met in homes. And I want you to know that that same model is, is itself being replicated in our church through our corporate time of worship that we have together here, but also in our Sunday school classes and the Bible studies in which God's Word is read and is openly discussed. In both settings, we express our spirit-directed desire to learn and submit ourselves to the Word of God. And therefore, both are important in the life of every believer. So the first characteristic of a a spirit-filled church we come to in this text is a devotion to the Word. The next one that Luke identifies comes right after that in verse 42, and it is this. It's a devotion to one another. A devotion to one another. He says that they not only continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but also in fellowship. Fellowship, that's the word koinonia in in Greek. It's a word we've looked at numerous times here as a church family over the years. It's a word that describes a relationship that folks share with one another and that they have in common with one another. Now, the reason why this one is important, I think, is because if you go back and you look at verse 5 of this chapter, you find the context in which this koinonia ultimately comes. In verse 5, you'll notice that Luke says that there were Jews dwelling in Jerusalem, listen, from every nation under heaven. And then in verses 9 through 11, he describes this list of all these various nations, these regions that the folks had come to Jerusalem from. But the context tells us that by the end of chapter 2, many of them, and we don't know how many from each place, but many of them had come together and had placed their faith in Christ and been baptized and they were a part of this church. And so many of them had repented of their sins. And and now we might ask, what in that first century world did those people have in common with one another? I mean, after all, what did someone from Rome have in common with someone who was from Egypt? What did a Parthian have in common with a Cyrene? I love what Alistair Begg offers. He puts it in modern day language and he says this. He says, it wasn't their common ethnicity or the schools that they went to, or the commonality of their musical preferences, or anything along those lines that brought them together. No, he says, they brought their diversity with them, but were nevertheless united together in a common faith. To put it in Ivy Creek language from when we studied the book of Philippians, they were a you-all church family. They came from all the different areas around in together and formed a you all 
gospel first, servant hearted, family of believers that wanted their lives to count for the glory of God. That's what they wanted to become, and that's what they became. They became spiritually united believers. Now, the reason that they were able to unite in fellowship with one another like this was because they were now in fellowship with God. You realize that they would have probably never had the ability to unite together if they had remained out of fellowship with God. But because of what Christ had done for them and what Christ has done for us, we can come together to form a unified body of believers. Marita puts it this way. He says, out of our common fellowship with the Father through Jesus, we enjoy fellowship with our spiritual brothers and sisters. And what that means, he goes on to say, is this. If people are out of fellowship with Christ, then they will be out of fellowship with the church. And if people are out of fellowship with Jesus' people, that is an indicator that they may be out of fellowship with Jesus. That's how strong the Christ church union is. You know, in most of the weddings that, that I have performed in my ministry, and I learned it many years ago, and it's a common a common analogy, I use the analogy of the triangle. Have you heard it? The triangle is there. At the top point of the triangle is God. And at each corner on the bottom is the husband and the wife. And the analogy works this way. The closer the husband and the wife get to God who is at the top, guess what they get? They get closer to one another. I want you to know it works the same way in the church. The closer that you and I get to God in our fellowship with him, the closer we become with one another. We could even use it this way. The stronger my vertical relationship is with Jesus, the stronger my horizontal relationships are going to be with the people in this church family. Luke goes on to tell us that the fellowship that these members of this early church in Jerusalem had with one another well, it worked itself out in practical acts of love and support. In fact, look down with me in verses 44 and 45, where Luke says that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. As one put it, their sharing in Christ allowed them to share out with one another. They became generous with one another, even to the point of selling their own possessions to help those who could not help themselves. Now, now, contrary to what some have argued, this was not an early version of communism or socialism. Um, no one was forcing them to do what they did, not the church, not, not some governmental agent. Rather, this was purely voluntary and it was a response on behalf of these believers who, because of the grace of God that God had shown to them, they wanted to share in his attributes and to share with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, if the gospel tells us anything, it tells us that on our own we are spiritually bankrupt, hopelessly lost, and without any means of being able to save ourselves. That is why Christ came. He came to bear our burdens. He came to pay our debt. He came to release us from the bondage under which we had been enslaved. And he did that purely out of love and purely out of generosity and grace toward us. And therefore, we who participate in that generosity, we ought to have, those who have benefited from his grace, well, we ought to be generous 
with what we have to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. In fact, as Boyce puts it, the standard set before us is the standard not of being served, but of serving. So our obligation is to use that which we have for the good of others, which is what the early church did. It is one measure, he writes, of a Christian sanctification and maturity. Now, let me point out that even though this was a characteristic of the early church there in Jerusalem, no one ever said that fellowshipping was easy. Listen, if your definition of fellowship is sitting around eating cookies and drinking coffee, that's good. That needs to happen. They broke bread from house to house. All that's good. But the deeper understanding of what it means to fellowship with one another here means that it's a sacrifice. And no one ever said that sacrifice was easy. No one, in, no one insinuated that it was. In fact, it takes effort. It takes effort to be devoted to one another. It takes effort, and it is often very costly to be devoted to one another. Nevertheless, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written in his classic book, Life Together, he says, it is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Let us not forget that. So the marks of a spirit-filled church are devotion to the word, a devotion to one another. And then notice the next point is a devotion to witnessing. A devotion to witnessing. Now I'm going to skip what's really the natural flow of the next point and go to the very last one that Luke identifies for us and the very final words of this passage. He tells us that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, those, are, those words immediately bring a question to me. Well, how was he doing that? Well, what was the means by which these people who were daily coming to faith in Christ and the church was growing, how were they learning about Jesus? What was happening there? Well, Luke doesn't tell us specifically, but, but based upon the whole of this passage and, and based upon what Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is the, the key verse that we need to continue to try to put to our memories, the key verse there, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be what? My witnesses as you go out into the, all of the regions of the world to the end of the world. And so what that tells us is that these, this early church were being empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out into the community around them and, and to tell others about Jesus. Now, if we think about that, how did they have an option to do anything less than that? I mean, something wonderful and miraculous had happened to them, so how could they not tell others about Jesus? How, how could they not tell others about all that he had done for them? What did that look like? Did they go to the door-to-door evangelizing? Did they go and hand out tracts into the local market? Did they stand on the street corner and preach the gospel? Luke doesn't tell us specifically how all of this went about. He does, however, tell us in verse 46, and I think this is instructive, that these believers gained favor with all the people, not just the people within the church did they gain favor with, though they certainly would have done that, but they gained favor with all the people. And so at a minimum, what that tells us is that these believers didn't isolate themselves from the community around them. They did not become so consumed with their own personal affairs that they didn't interact with those around them. Rather, to pull from something that Peter would write later in his life when he wrote his epistles, and he wrote the first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I believe that these people were already demonstrating what he wrote there because it seems that the members of this church were always ready to give a defense to everyone who asked them for a reason. 
for the hope that was in them. What I believe this passage teaches us is that these believers were open about their faith. And in their openness, all could see that they had, their lives had been transformed. They were attractive. And I don't mean attractive in the physical sense as much as I mean an attraction to the way that they lived. There was something beautiful about what other people were being able to see in their lives, and it attracted them. And they were letting their light so shine before others that they might see their good works and glorify their Father which is in heaven. In other words, these believers lived out their lives in such a way that non-believers were miraculously drawn to them and ultimately to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as Luke reports, they were so effective in their evangelistic efforts that the Lord added to their number day after day after day after day. Brothers and sisters, witnessing to others about the gospel of Jesus is not less important than the other characteristics that we've identified. In fact, I love what John Stott has written. He says, those first Jerusalem Christians were not so preoccupied with learning and sharing and worshiping that they forgot about witnessing. For the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. Stott goes on to quote Harry Bohr, who who said this about the book of Acts. He said, the book of Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. And this motif is the expansion of the faith through the missionary witness in the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually, churches rise out of that witness. The church is a missionary church. So what we see is that a healthy church will have a burden for the lost, and a Spirit-filled church will be comprised of people who boldly and compassionately proclaim the gospel to their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers. A devotion to the Word, a devotion to one another, a devotion to witnessing, and then the fourth point that I have listed for you there is a devotion to worship. A devotion to worship. Now, when we use the word and the term worship in modern parlance, we, we, we often mean the time that we spend singing songs and, of praise and adoration to the Lord together and certainly Lifting our voices together in praise through song is an integral part of our worship expression. But, but listen, worship involves much more than singing alone. That becomes evident, I believe, here in this text. However, before we examine the expression of worship, worship which, which Luke points to, I want us to highlight two ways that the worship of the early church was described here in this passage. Based upon what Luke writes, what we can understand is that this early church's gatherings were marked by a spirit of praise and worship that that was both joyful and reverent. It was both joyful and reverent. Their joy was evident based upon what Luke tells us there in verse 46 because he tells us that they ate their meals together with gladness and simplicity of heart. In other words, they possessed a joy about them when they gathered together that came from a gratefulness because of what Christ has done for them. And and when they reflected on what Christ had done, it it bubbled up with joy in their hearts. But listen, there's also a sense of reverence in their worship. Notice what he tells us in verse 43. He says that there was a sense of fear that came upon 
every soul. Some of your, uh, your Bibles will, will, will translate that word as awe. And, and, and what we sense is, what we recognize is that when the Lord was in their midst, they knew it. How did they know it? Well, verse 43 says that the apostles were still doing signs and wonders in there. And so they knew that God was present. And when they were in the presence of God, it brought great fear and awe and reverence to the room. What that means is that when the church comes together to worship the Lord, that worship ought to be marked by both of those things. It ought to be marked by joyful exuberance and enthusiasm because of what Christ has done. Listen, he has changed our destinies. You and I were once lost, bound for a devil's hell, ensconced in our sins, blinded by all of it, and we had no hope. We had no hope within ourselves and no hope from any help outside to change our destinies. But because of what Christ has done, we are on our way to heaven today, and we have every reason to come to this place and to be excited and to be enthusiastic about that fact. That's exactly what you should have done right there. That's an amen. That's exactly right. Of all the people in the world, Christians ought to be known as the most joyful because we have the most to be excited about. But listen, we ought also to be known for our reverence and our awe of what the Lord has done for us. When we truly consider the awesomeness of our God, the holiness of His nature, the fierceness of His wrath, the magnificence of His power, and then the weight of our guilt because of our sin, I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, such thoughts ought to produce within us a sense of meditation and silence and contemplation and wonder and awe. Joy and reverence, listen, they are not mutually exclusive. Stott writes this, he says, If joy in God is an authentic work of the Spirit, so is the fear of God. In fact, when we consider the salvation that is ours and the cost with which it was purchased, well, then we must conclude that they naturally go together. And what we see is that the members of this early church were committed to devoting themselves to worship, and that worship was both joyful and reverent. Now, Luke not only tells us that the nature, about the nature of their worship, that it was joyful and reverent, but then he tells us the way that it was expressed. And he gives us one specific way that I want us to center our time the rest of the time on this morning. He tells us in verse 42 that this early church continued steadfastly and remained devoted to the breaking of bread and prayers. Also, that was verse 42. Notice down in verse 46. Notice breaking bread is mentioned again there as they went from house to house. Now, I pointed out earlier, those are two pictures that point to both the corporate and the private, the formal and the informal gathering of the members of the church body. But I want to highlight the fact that because of that definitive, that definite article that's used there in verse 42, the breaking of bread, well, that has led many throughout church history to identify what we refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper as what they were, uh, they were worshiping and, and celebrating together. And that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me because it's mentioned right alongside the study of the word and, and right alongside fellowshipping with one another. It's listed right there in the same context. And so consequently, what we recognize is that the observance of communion or the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. It is an act of 
of declaring the worth and the glory and the excellence of Christ. And it is a time for the church to pause to remember the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus made on our behalf. It is a time to reverently stand in awe as we recall the fact that his body was brutally beaten and torn and and torn apart and crucified. And his blood was spilled out and that he was brutalized and crucified for our sins. But in observing the Lord's Supper, it's also a time to, to joyfully remind ourselves that his death has brought us life. That, that death no longer has a claim on you and I. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, death no longer has a claim over us. Our sin has been forgiven. We've been washed in the blood. And though they were once as red as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. And so that is, just as this early church did, so too I want us to lead, to lead us this morning into this sacred act of worship by observing the Lord's Supper. And I want us to remember that his body was nailed to the cross. And I want us to remember that his blood was poured out for the remission of sins. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if your confession is that you are a Christian and that he is your Lord and Savior, then I invite you to take the cup that you should have received when you came in and they passed out earlier. And I want us to worship the Lord together this morning through that. Turn it so that you have the the piece of bread facing up and pull the tab back. Take that piece of bread out. As we gather together this morning with this small piece of bread, it is there to remind us that Jesus Christ had a corporal body, body just as we do. He was fully human just as we are human. And that his body experienced the same pain that our bodies experience. And that in his body, he was crucified to Calvary's cross. That his skin was torn, his muscles were ripped. The nails went through him to fix him to Calvary's cross, and he hung there. so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. As you partake of this bread this morning, allow your mind to be fixed upon that bread. Body of Christ, take it. Now you can carefully turn it over and pull back the top of the cup. It wasn't just bread that they partook of together. They also would have drank the fruit of the vine. And when they drank from that fruit of the vine, they would have been reminded of that color, of that red color of blood. And while it is very much one of those things to consider the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for us, it is important that we recognize that it was for the remission of our sins. The blood of Christ was shed so that you and I might be forgiven, that our slate may be wiped clean. That we might one day be able to stand before God's righteous bar of his judgment, 
judgment and be able to stand there declared righteous. We don't stand there righteous on our own. We are declared righteous by the bar of God who took out our punishment on Jesus Christ and that his blood was shed so that our, we might live. And so as we look into this cup this morning, we are reminded of the fact that Christ died for us. And that's what allows us to rejoice today, that our eternal destinies have been changed because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ, take it. So this morning, what we have done is we have looked to the Scriptures to see how this early church there in Jerusalem lived, what united them, how did they just responded to one another, how they interacted within the wider community, how they expressed their love for Christ. And all of that we have considered today, I want to offer this sermon in a sentence to you. A spirit-filled church will be made up of spirit-filled believers who are passionate about studying the Bible, sharing with one another, telling others about Jesus, and worshiping together by joyfully and reverently remembering what Christ has done for them. Let me ask you this morning as we close today, in light of all that, in light of what we've learned, a few little points and questions of application and we'll close. How important is the Word of God to you? Are you regularly and humbly placing yourself under the authority of the teaching of the Word of God? Are you submitting your life to the truth that it reveals and then repenting of the areas that it brings out in your life? How about fellowship? First of all, do you have fellowship with God through Jesus? Have you repented of your sin and have you placed your faith in Christ? If not, the Bible declares that today is the day of salvation. The Bible declares that you to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. So the question is, will you do that today? Will you humble yourself before God and through Christ be reconciled to him? If that is your testimony and you have been saved, then the question then further goes, are you working to build relationships with others within the church body? Are you committed to being involved and accountable to this local church family? Are you making yourself available to be impacted by others? And are you yourselves being willing to make an impact on others through serving? Are you sharing of that which the Lord has blessed you so that you're able to help others within this church family? Are you witnessing? Are you actively sharing the good news of the gospel with others around you? And are you inviting friends and neighbors to come to church, to Sunday school with you? Are you involved in ministries that serve others and provide opportunities for you to share the good news of, God, of the gospel with them? And then finally, this text requires you and I to ask ourselves about our devotion and our steadfast commitment to the gathering of God's people together in both large and small groups. Is that a priority for your life as it was for these early believers? Are you joyfully and reverently worshiping the Lord on a, reverent, on a regular basis. Brothers and sisters, we are afforded a great privilege in this country to have the freedom to worship, freedom to open our Bibles 
and read from them and to study them publicly. Freedom to rub elbows with fellow believers without the risk and the fear of being persecuted. We, are, we have a freedom to share with others the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have the freedom to gather and to sing praises and to pray and to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a community of believers together. May we not take those privileges for granted. May, may we be who Christ commands us to be and who the Holy Spirit empowers us to be. May we be a Spirit-filled church made up of Spirit-filled believers living in obedience to the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the gift that it is to us. I thank you that we have this wonderful gift of an opportunity to be able to be here together as the people of God, worshiping together. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us your favor and allow your grace to rest upon us. And now as we go into this time of invitation, allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. And may we be willing to go and live an obedient life and to repent of those things that you would bring to our mind and to be changed by the power of the gospel. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for what it means for us and for our salvation and for the joy that it brings to us and also for the awe that we stand as we look at you and understand what you have done for us. I thank you for all of these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.